Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter, political under, at political underscore beats on Twitter. Also, ask you to subscribe to our feed. Get those new episodes on Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share. Please leave reviews as well. Political Beats, where we talk to people in and around the world of politics, not about anything political at all, no tax rates or health care. It's just music and our guest's choice uh, to discuss during the episode. Uh, my name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, slightly tired, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Uh, hey, how are you, man? You know what? We're all idiots, babe. It's a wonder we still know how to breathe. <laughs> and uh, joining us, we did not turn him off enough to uh, to uh, preclude a return engagement. Uh, he is senior editor at the Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally some music coverage. By night, an alt-country singer-songwriter desperately looking to switch careers. It might be the plot of a movie, but no, it's just the life of Andrew Carell, who you can also find on Twitter at Andrew Carell. Andrew, thanks for coming back. Thank you again for having me. Uh, and so this, if you're just joining us, is part two of our look at Bob Dylan. If you want to hear about how Andrew found out about Dylan and why he loves Dylan and a whole bunch of background, we'll go to part one. We also covered the time from 1962 through 1967 uh, through John Wesley Harding. So this is part two, and we'll begin in a moment with, uh, with Nashville Skyline. Part one of our, our, our Dylan retrospective was basically Dylan in the 60s. And then part two of this retrospective is, for better, you know, for more or less going to be Dylan in the 70s. You know, add a little year on, you know, at the front, subtract a year on the back end. There are reasons for that that you'll understand. But this is basically Dylan in the 70s. And I've, I've had a thesis about this that I've been thinking about for, well, actually probably for 20 years now. Uh, but I sort of came together when we started uh, putting together the idea of this show. Uh, I was thinking to myself, why are these albums so much more diffuse? And why do they sort of not cohere in my mind in the same way that Dylan's 60s and Dylan's even, you know, Dylan's 90s and his modern era of music making do in my head? And I kind of figured it out. I think I think the thing about Dylan in the 70s and and, and I know that Andrew is going to argue and I boy I don't know if I would quite agree with him but I can definitely feel him I vibe him on this. He's going to argue this is Dylan's best era or it's his, it's certainly his most favorite era. And I get that. And despite that fact, it's so discursive. What is the difference between Dylan in the 60s and Dylan in the 70s? What the difference is to me is that in Dylan's 60s albums you see a progression a clear progression from album to album you could compare dylan to the beatles or the who or the rolling stones where you have a sort of smooth artistic progression where every album signals what's going to come next every album has hints of what came before it seems like a very kind of coherent and logical progression from an artist who's learning their craft finding their feet kind of coming into the full flowering of their talent if you liked everything you heard on bob dylan's debut album or freewheeling you got to have more of that on the times they are a changing or another side of bob dylan even the second half of bringing it all back home if you like the electric stuff that you heard on bringing it all back home or sort of the mystical kind of themes that you first started hearing on another side of bob dylan well you got that 
on Highway 61 Revisited. You got that on Blonde on Blonde. If you like the sort of weirdness that you heard on Blonde on Blonde, you got that on the basement tapes. The spareness of the basement tapes, the simplicity, you found it on John Wesley Hardy. And I think you can also say, I think actually Andrew made this point, that the first album that we'll be talking about in this episode, Nashville Skyline, has a certain level of continuity with John Wesley Hardy. And I would actually argue that those first three albums of Dylan's 70s, or 60s and 70s, Skyline, Self-Portrait, New Morning, they're kind of of a piece with that sort of you know, easily understood artistic development. But then something happens. There's a huge caesura in Dylan's career, and I think it happens when he switches labels. Then you have the major albums of his 70s career, Planet Waves, Blood on the Tracks, Desire, Street Legal. Four albums, four you know, major albums, and I think most of them are excellent albums, but none of them really sound like one another. There are four different albums that are in four different styles. There's no artistic coherence to them. Suddenly, Dylan is just doing one thing one day. He's doing another thing another day. He's doing another thing the next day. If it was successful or if it was a failure, it doesn't matter. He's picked up stakes and he's moved on to a new thing. There's no smooth artistic progression. There's no coherence. There's just Dylan relentlessly experimenting. And that was going to set a template for what would come both in his successful years in the 70s and in his lost years in the 80s. And so that's why the 70s are so fascinating. You have these albums. This is the period of his greatest commercial success. The only number one albums he ever scored Mm -hmm. were during this era. And yet, compare Planet Waves to Blood on the Tracks to Desire, three consecutive number one hit albums. They don't sound like one another even the slightest bit. They all sound like you know, they sound like Bob Dylan is singing them and writing them. But musically, they could not be more different from one another in so many different ways. Why is that? Because Dylan was no longer on that same kind of predictable artistic track that every other musician of his caliber and of, you know, of his peers were. He had jumped the tracks and he had taken off into a completely different continuum. And I guess the story of how he got there begins with uh, a visit to Nashville. Uh, and so we start at, in 1969. I mean, it, we, we talked about how our last episode actually ended in 1967 with John Wesley Harding. The year 1968 is, is not a year. He, he, he's basically, he's married. He's living basically in obscurity in, in, in upstate New York. He doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone. Uh, there's no music made during that year. When he resurfaces in 1969, uh, everyone is stunned. Because the Bob Dylan they knew, the folk singer, the rock and roller, the mystic poet, is gone. And here's this guy singing like, oh me, oh my, I love my country pie, in a gummy voice with Nashville studio pros on an album that is a blessed 25 minutes long. And I love that about Nashville Skyline, by the way. And what the hell do you say about Dylan's first true left turn in his discography, Nashville Skyline. I'm going to, guess, turn it over to Scott first. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Lay Lady Lay from Nashville Skyline likely is one of the first Dylan songs I ever heard because it was the 45 of Dylan that uh, my parents had in their collection. Uh, And I'm certain, I mean, I I remember hearing him sing Lay Lady Lay compared to whatever I had heard on the radio by that point or around that same time is like, 
you know, finding out the same guy saying dream on and I don't want to miss a thing. You know, Steven Tyler's voice is slightly different during those 35, 40 years or so. And Dylan's yeah. singing in a completely different way on Na- Nashville Skyline. This very low, crooning voice that I think probably most apparent on Lay Lady Lay, which comes across as a very soulful kind of song. Whatever colors you have in your mind, I show them to you. And you see them shine Lay, lay, lay Play across my big breast bed Stay, lady, stay Stay with your man a while Uh, it, it's a it's a good song. Um, it was one of the hits from the from from the album, with uh, this wonderful descending chord progression. And it's it's one that people likely know. I, I, you know the the musicianship on Nashville Skyline I think is quite good. It had some Ace Studio guys in there with him playing. The 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 lyrics and the songwriting kind of kind of miss uh, for me. And, and if I if I read correctly, you know when when he, he did this a lot in the '60s, you know you go into the studio and you figure it out. Um, this time he went in the studio, he had four songs, and it was hard to make it through. You have a, uh, a remake of Girl from the North Country with Johnny Cash on vocals, which I don't think is all that good. Cash and Dylan's voices just don't mingle well. They don't, they don't play well together in, in my, to my ear. Uh, you've got uh, the first instrumental from Dylan on the album. You've got uh, Country Pie, which is a, a scant 90 seconds in length. It's a short one. I don't hold it against it, but I think it's a, a sign that the songwriting was not quite where it had been for some of the past albums. That said, uh, some gems. Um, I actually heard To Be Alone With You on uh, on the radio while driving back and forth to Illinois this past weekend, and it sounded good coming out of the speakers. That's such a pretty melody. And uh, I want to know the radio station that played To Be Alone With You. It was uh, uh, Sirius XM's Outlaw Country channel, of course. There you go. Okay. <laughs> it had to be satellite radio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean that that that's a great song with the guitar picking stabs in there. I wish the night was here, bringing me all of your charms. When only you are near to hold me in your arms. I always thank the Lord when my work is through. I get my sweet reward. And um, tonight I'll be staying here with you. That might be the best song of the album. It's not completely classic Dylan, but among the the tracks on Nashville Skyline, it might be the best. Uh, very simple, direct uh, song. The twangy guitar riff, little bar house piano in there reminds me a lot of "I'll Be Your Baby Tonight" from uh, from the, from the previous album. And um, you know, this is not uh, uh, the the easiest time in, in Dylan's career, and yet on this one, you know, throw my troubles out the door. I don't need them anymore. As if something could be uh, so simple <laughs> to make life easier as just throwing your troubles out the door. Uh, but that's a, that's a good one. You know, slight stuff. I, I don't think there's much to Peggy Day, um, despite the wonderful pedal steel playing. I don't think there's much to. I threw it all away. If I close my eyes. His, oh, his oh, crew. Oh, so, so, so wrong. Uh, yeah, so incredibly wrong. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let someone take it from there. Defend All yourself. Right, Andrew, Andrew, you're up, and then I'm going to probably end up agreeing with you. So go for it. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Well, a couple of things. Well, yeah, threw it all away. I was going to say is probably my favorite song on the album because to me, it's like um, I see that as Dylan's version of Elvis Presley's um, That's Where Your Heartache Begins. It's this just so miserably sad and i love it and i i mean i used to listen to it when i i remember after a bad breakup that was definitely my my go-to once i had mountains in the palm of my hand and rivers that ran through every day that must have been made i never knew what i had Till I threw it all away Love is all it is It makes the world go round Love and only love It can't be denied No matter what you think about it You just won't be able to do without it Take a tip from one who's tried. So if you find someone. And also, he reinvented it live in the 70s pretty well. Um, Tonight, I'll be staying here with you is another great one that, if you think the studio version is incredible, on, uh, I believe it's bootleg number five or six for the uh, Rolling Thunder Review Tour, the live version. Yeah, just incredible. It becomes this like gypsy, heavy rock song. It's it's a, a raucous, like coming off the rails kind of song. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's a, there's a lot of songs on here that are throwaways, and it it sounds like he's just having fun in the studio. But two thoughts on the album overall is um, well, first of all, Johnny Cash obviously did the Girl from the North Country remake with him, and it's worth checking out though. It's not essential, and I, I think you know you have to really really want to hear a full take of songs between Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan, but there is a bootleg of the Dylan Cash sessions where they recorded 12 songs, and I do recommend checking that out because they do a bunch of... It's almost like a, the Million Dollar Bash, but with Dylan and and Cash and just the two of them on guitars doing a bunch of classic country tunes and um, Carl Perkins songs. But uh, up the actual album, Nashville Skyline, um, I think the general... You know, I've, I've, I think I might have mentioned in the last episode that... Uh, John Wesley Harding maybe is part of the beginning of alt country or like the beginning of alt country music. And this album, in a lot of ways, uh, there are other genres indebted to this besides obviously the country rock, you know, like a rock and roller playing country. But, uh, you know, with this album, he brought in a lot of ways a new audience and a new attention and a new sort of rock and roll coolness to Nashville. And right before the city began to split in terms of how it made country music. So you had, you know, the Nashville sound with, mm. you know, heavily sentimental and Charlie Rich and, you know, piano laden and Billy Sherrill producing all this stuff. And it was very, very, you know, schmaltzy, good, but, you know, schmaltzy Nashville sound country music. And then outlaw country music, I think, is indebted to the fusion that Dylan, I guess, started to bring here, which is just that rock and roll swagger. Not, I mean, there's really not a lot of, um, you know, the, uh, the guitars from Highway 61 are not here, so it's not necessarily a rock and roll album in that sense, but it's bringing Dylan and bringing what Dylan means to country music. And I think that really leads, not necessarily directly, but really accentuates how, how Nashville was sort of splitting at that time. And like you get the Waylon Jennings, you get the Honky Tonk Heroes of the 70s, you get all these great albums that I think you would package together with Nashville Skyline. 
I think one of the important things to remember about Nashville skyline is that you know for a massive curveball thrown by Dylan, uh, this was an incredibly well-reviewed album. Yeah. This album was a commercial success as well. It went to number three in America. I think it went to number one in England. Uh, Lay Lady Lay was a hit single. I threw it all away, and tonight I'll be staying here with you. Were also pretty big hits in the top forty. This is commercially like you know. A, a, just a huge success for Dylan, despite the fact that it was as uncharacteristic as anything he had ever done, even more than going electric in 1965. Um, and I remember thinking for a while when I first, you know, got this album, like, well, was that was he just cruising on his rep for this? Because you know, immediately, <clears throat> you know, the first time I heard it, it it didn't click with me. But the more, the older I get. Maybe the more of like you know an, a, an old dad I become. Well, you know, yeah, I'm only a month into dadhood, right? But the more this album actually resonates me with me, and and I'm gonna say this again. I make this point a lot of times on our show, and it sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, but I'm not. One of the things I love the most about Nashville Skyline. 27 minutes and 14 seconds. I put this album on again today when I was sitting down um, you know, in, in a waiting room, and before I knew it, I was done with it. All those great songs just flew by me. Bob doesn't waste my time at all. The longest song on this is Girl from the North Country, the duet with Johnny Cash, which I think is good. It's not great for all the reasons that Scott said. It's like two fantastic flavors. It's like, um, you know... Uh, you know, popsicles and hot dogs. You like the taste <laughs> of both, but you don't want them together. Uh, so it, it's not a huge, not a complete success, on in my opinion. But it's it's not bad. But this thing just flies from beginning to end. You never have time to get bored of any of the songs on it. And the other thing I think about is that this is Dylan actually consciously saying to himself, and maybe even saying to his audience, "All right, I'm going to do something." with my songwriting he he improvised you know a lot of these these songs in the studio he would write them like in hotel rooms when he, in between sessions i think he wrote i threw it all away in, in a ramada inn or something like that when he was like in between sessions trying to figure out extra tracks to put on the album and uh He's writing more formal pop music at this point he has verses and choruses middle eights mm -hmm. That's the thing. He doesn't, you know, that's the pop, the pop sellout, if you will. You know, the old folk tradition is just verse, little chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus until the end. But now he's thinking more consciously about craftsmanship, and it shows up on these songs. And I really like that. And I, I get that it's slight. I would never claim this is one of the major records of his career, but it was successful for a reason. And then all of a sudden, a guy cruising along at 65 miles an hour down the highway hits a brick wall <laughs> with self-portrait <laughs> i can do no better than to start by quoting grail marcus's the opening lines of grail marcus's famous rolling stone review of self-portrait by saying what is this <laughs> what happened what is going on with self-portrait uh, the short version, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, this is a double album. You think Bob Dylan double album, major statement, <laughs> like blonde on blonde, you know? This is going to be a big thing. No, what it is is a cover, uh, a collection of very weird, almost perversely strange 
cover tunes, very, you know, larded up with strings and horns and, uh, you know, Bob Dylan singing in his sweet country, you know, voice. There's not a single substantial self-written song on the entire record. Why did he call it self-portrait? Why did he release a double album? Why did he sell it to the public as a major statement when it was so quite intentionally a minor statement? There, he's given many answers over the years, and I find the most convincing one to be the fact that he was really just sick of people, you know, hounding him about being the voice of his generation. You know, there were literally guys who were going through his trash outside on the street, like rooting around in it to find like hints about what he was thinking, saying, doing, eating, and throwing away. AJ Weberman was the name of the guy who would do this. Um, that he just put out a record to say to people, uh, you know, listen, go away. I'm, I'm making music for my own amusement. I, I'm not making major statements for you. I want nothing to do with you. This album is roundly reviled. It is a punchline in the history of rock music, and yet I like it. I like <laughs> it. A, I like it a fair amount, and I can defend it in many different ways. Uh, anybody want to take it from there and tell me what they think of Self Portrait? Uh, I'll go. Uh, yeah. Continuing with what you were saying about Dylan's uh, intentions, behind it, I think my favorite example of him explaining it in an in interview i don't know what year it was uh but i have the quote written down was i the thinking at the time was quote i wish these people would just forget about me i want to do something they can't possibly like and <laughs> when i guess when you're bob dylan you have that luxury of just being like having a massive fan base as you said like uh what's his name aj uh, going AJ Weberman, right yeah like you know you somebody with that massive a fan base that decodes every single thing he says and does obviously it's like yeah might as well screw with him <laughs> like yeah, I mean, the sad thing is he made something that like you know there are people like me who will perversely defend <laughs> <laughs> we go to bat for all the tired horses which is open <laughs> but this is a song for those who don't know this is a song that bob dylan does not appear on it's just a, yes. a female chorus <laughs> set to strings singing the words all the tired horses in the sun how am i supposed to get any riding done Mm-mm-mm. for three minutes that's all it is it is so clearly an f you And uh, I mean, this, uh, both versions of the traditional Alberta. I love the number two one that's at the end of the album. I think that's a great little piano, sort of a, the old Western tune. And then, of course, to me, everything else is throwaway. And we can talk about the bootleg that were later released, another self-portrait that showed that actually there was a lot of good stuff recorded for these sessions that just, for whatever reason, were disregarded. But uh, the best song on the album for me, which is also... I believe instrumental except for Dylan singing a little bit is it achieved for me, this song wigwam mm-hmm. achieved sort of cinematic brilliance with the Royal Tenenbaums. And maybe that's why I love it so much because it's so perfectly used in film. La, 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 But 
then the more I think about it, it's like a lot of the songs in here that have strings and horn arrangements could be used in film and pretty well. But even then, Andrew, it was perverse. Wigwam should have ended this album. And instead he throws on that second a second version of a song. The second yeah. version of the same damn song. And by the way, that's the second time on the album he did right. a song twice. Because he did Little, Little Sadie, Sadie twice. Yeah. Yep. Oh God, there's so many ways in which he's just completely tweaking the noses of his fans on this record. It's like up there with Metal Machine music. It's li- it is like truly maybe the first and in some ways, greatest screw you to fans, yeah. and yet he couldn't help but put quality stuff on it. People always talk about the cop, or copper kettle, yeah. the pale moonlight, as being like, oh, well, you know, hidden among the crap on this album is this great gem. Um, I actually only think that that's, that's indifferently good. It's okay. It's not great. I don't love it. Uh, but the one that I really love, I'll, I'll defend his cover of The Boxer on an ironic level. <laughs> he, he does a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer, you know, la, 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 la. And it's kind of funny because it's a duet it's a uh, with him in his, like, old folk voice and him in his, like, new country voice. I don't know what conceptual end that's to, but I like it and I'll defend it, but I defend it with a certain level of ironic distance. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade and he carries a reminder of every blow that laid him low and cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. I will defend Days of 49. Yes, I think that's my favorite, too. I will defend that in a completely wholehearted and sincere way. That is a funny song. But, you know, my household, my dad, my dad's Dylan collection was crazy. My dad didn't have Bringing It All Back Home. He didn't have Blonde on Blonde or Blood on the Tracks, but he had Hard Rain and he had Self-Portrait in his collection. So my dad would always tell me about how much he loved Days of 49. There's this one great line in it. He said, my name's Tom, Tom Moore, Bummer Shore. Uh, from the good old golden days, and there's a line. They call me a bummer and a gin sop too, but what cares I for praise? Which is just such a great self-deprecating line. Comes from a traditional song, and Dylan just delivers it perfectly. And there are horns on it. These big, I actually don't even know if it's a horn or if it, it could be a bass harmonica, which is a, a so, uh, an instrument you really only hear in Beach Boys songs. Like in I Know There's an Answer by the Beach Boys off of Pet Sounds. I'm not sure what instrument it is, but this is an orchestrated song that works it's a really great traditional song i love it unironically i pass by from town to town they call me the rambling sign there goes time more up on the shore in the days of 49 in the days of old in the days of gold how often times i refine for the days of old when we dug up the gold in the days of 49 in the days of old, and we dug up the gold, how oft times I repine. In the days of old, in the days of gold, in the days of 49. I'm not the guy who's going to defend like the live version of like a Rolling Stone or She Belongs to Me from Iowa Boy. 
the live version of Like a Rolling Stone is 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 terrible, terrible. Um, he forgets the words. <laughs> yeah, or he just can't remember them. Yeah, yeah. I, and I don't I, I I don't mind Early Morning Rain, the the Gordon Lightfoot cover. You, uh, actually, Jeff mentioned Days of Forty Nine and Copper Kettle, which I think are okay, but. Really, this album is bad. I, I, I don't return <laughs> to it very often. I don't enjoy it very much. But I had not heard um, another self-portrait, uh, which, which Jeff, you know, we, you know, as we plan, you know, sometimes I'll send things. Jeff, so you, you got to hear this, and he'll do the same. So you you got to hear another self-portrait. And the first time I listened to it, uh, but to be clear to people, uh, this is an entry yes. in Bob Dylan's bootleg series, right, which right. is a series of archival releases, stuff from the vaults. And this is everyone was shocked when they were like, of all the pl- of all the eras to revisit, why are you revisiting self portrait? Because there's some and, incredibly yeah. good music. I literally sat mouth agape as the first tracks began to come off, and it's it's I, I would not put it you know among you know, not not like best ever stuff, but this is extremely high quality material left off of self-portrait and recorded around that era and it's good all you know the overdubs are stripped you get this directness to a lot of the songs that are on um or that are included on the uh, the, uh, the another self-portrait um and, and there's some just really good stuff some some reworked things um there uh, there's a uh, i think two different versions of time passes slowly uh there's one that's a little more aggressive with uh, Cooper on the organ, that's that's really excellent. Uh, there's a version of New Morning, which we'll talk about in a moment. The the, the next album, the, the title track with the with horns, this big fat horn sound on it, which is which, which I love. Went to see the Gypsy is done in a completely different arrangement, which I really love. Uh, working at a Guru, uh, George Harrison plays on that, if I'm not mistaken, and and his his guitar work is fantastic. Uh, Pretty Sarah, which would be perfect on Nashville Skyline. I write my love a letter that she'd understand And I write it by the river where the waters overflow But I dream of Pretty Sarah wherever I go All of these songs, any of these songs, would have made worthy, more than worthy additions to Self-Portrait, but that is not the album that Bob Dylan wanted to put out. Um, thankfully, we get to hear them much, much later on, but I think it goes to show that if he, <laughs> I choose words carefully, if he wanted to put out uh, a higher caliber album, it was possible, and maybe... He really did just want to put out an album to tell people to go away. I'm going to do my thing, and and and, and I know this is not what you want to hear. Any final thoughts, Andrew? Or you can tell us what you think of his, uh, the way it's at least pitched to the world is his comeback album, New Morning, which was released a mere four months after Self Portrait, <laughs> which does give one the impression that even Dylan thought to himself. Well, Whoa, maybe I've yeah. gone too far. You know, <laughs> or he, he's, he's like Joe. He's like Joe Bluth on uh, Arrested Development. He's like, I've, I've made, made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, 
<laughs> he goes in and records New Morning, uh, which is an album that was treated with, uh, I would say, a, you know, a certain measured respect when it initially came out. And then, you know, as I was growing up in the 90s, was treated as a footnote, sort of like, ah, well, but it's really not that good. And then in recent years, has seen, I think, kind of a critical revival where people now treat it as uh, something close to a major album in his career. It may be like one of his like real secret gems, really underrated albums. I think that's kind of where I fall on it. Where do you fall, Andrew? Same. I think it's it's uneven. It's not perfect, but um, it's it's up there. Uh, you know, I think you have the whole. It, 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 to me, this is like him starting to be a little more earnest than he's ever been, and I think that's a really important part of this, explaining the '70s for 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 a lot of people. Is it's Family Man Bob now? <laughs> yeah, Family Man Bob, but also Bob who's willing to bear his soul, of course, in in the usual you know uh, very literary way instead of being you know instead of diary entry lyric. But you know, for me, there's a bunch of really interesting stories too behind all these songs is basically just because he's, he's this now not suburban dad, but he's a pastoral Bob Dylan and he's experiencing life in a much slower way, I think. And there's all these funny stories like day of the locust, which was yeah. about, uh, it's a great <laughs> yeah. talk. His wife and David Crosby dragging him to, to get his honorary degree from Princeton. He didn't want to go. And then when they got there, he didn't want to put on the gown and they made him do it. Uh, and, the day the actual locusts that he sings of are the locusts that were forming Princeton at the time that he was giving the speech, and there's a line referring to David Crosby standing next to him with his head exploding. <laughs> I put down my robe, picked up my diploma, took a hold of my sweetheart, and away we did drive. Straight for the hills, Black Hills of Dakota. Sure was glad to get out of that life. It's just one of those, like, it's so unique to Bob and it's been telling something that's actually biographical because I feel like he never really was that biographic with his music before. Yeah. Uh, and if not for you, obviously, which uh, is fantastic, but I think actually George Harrison, well, George Harrison covered it and did it better on uh, mm -hmm. All Things Past, but that's like, that's an incredible love song. If not for you, is actually the version that's on Another Self Portrait with the strings and it's kind of goopy and slower is these my first dance at my wedding i will add and uh and then the oh actually there's two songs for my wedding on this album not to be all about me but oh man that's really moving actually because because yeah that's exactly the right milieu for that it's it's it it's if not for you set to like um you know, ken burns's civil war strings basically for people who haven't heard it maybe we'll put the clip in here it's really beautiful if not for you Babe, I couldn't find the door I couldn't even see the floor I'd be sad and blue If not for you 
yeah, it's a little maudlin, but it was it was a perfect first dance song. And then uh, another, uh, my other favorite song on the album, "The Man in Me," yeah. which was my recessional after we got married, uh, right after the <laughs> the glass was smashed by my feet and the chayim and all that. But uh, also. The reason I love the man of me so much and uh, talking about how I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on just Bob Dylan and film. Yes. But in the Big Lebowski, the famous uh, credit scene where it's just, you know, the, the bowling ball rolling down, the, the rolling towards the pins, just beautiful use of the man of me. It's such it's one. I, I think it might be my favorite use of music and film uh, is is that. And then there are other great songs, obviously, like New Morning, which I think is a fantastic. Just a just a like a hippie country jam and then the way it was done with the horns on another self-portrait takes it to this whole other level where it's like almost like a blue-eyed soul song or uh-huh. kind of like a stevie wonder song it's, yep this is just a great album it, it's soul it's it's uh, it's like horn laden organ laden pop and rock and uh, jazz he even tries jazz on if dogs run free that not is successfully up, though scat vocal <laughs> jazz and he's got the uh, uh a lullaby winterlude which is just like a bizarro two minute long uh waltz tempo i, I guess it's a lullaby it just seems like it would be a lullaby i, I don't know how to explain the, the melody in a way that makes people who've never heard it understand but uh it's it's corny but but it's still a good song like there's not a bad song in this album i don't think well, no, there are a couple bad songs. I don't think I don't think one more weekend is anything other than like a silly blues retread. I don't I don't really think I don't think it ends well. I think Three Angels and Father of Night are kind of like toss offs. But uh, I, it was funny you talked about Dylan being autobiographical on this record, and I'm surprised that you didn't mention Went to See the Gypsy, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating song. Now, of course, everybody debates what the meaning of that lyric is, but the most obvious interpretation is the one that I like, which is that he's, he's talking about see, meeting Elvis in, in Vegas. You know, I went to see the Gypsy. He talks about going up to his hotel room. Talks about how like you gotta believe in him. He did it in Vegas. He can do it here too. Um, it's just a very strange and, and, and elusive song that, nevertheless, paints an image and it clearly seems to come from his personal life. I went down to the lobby to make a small call out. A pretty dancing girl was there, and she began to shout. Go on back to see the gypsy He can move you from the rear Drive you from your fear Bring you through the beer He did it in Las Vegas And he can do it here Think about New Morning, and this is, by the way, where I, I kind of feel like it represents a terminus. This is kind of going back to my the, the way I opened the show. This represents a terminus in a lot of ways for Bob Dylan's sort of you know the straight line of Bob Dylan's artistic development from uh, you know from Bob Dylan, the self-titled album, nineteen sixty-one, all the way to New Morning. This you can connect, you can draw a line that connects every one of these songs from you know, every one of these albums, from the prior album to the next album. It makes sense. It makes sense. Sometimes you have to squint, like you know, between Blonde on Blonde and John Wesley Harding, you have to know about what happened, mm-hmm. you know, in Socrates on the basement tapes. But it all makes sense. And this is the end, because this is actually Dylan at his is most rockest in a lot of ways. New Morning, yes. that is a straight up rock song. He is writing rock, you know, style rock phrasing, coming up with those rock middle eights, and also, you know, you see it on the Day of the Locusts on If Not for You. 
brings in of who does he bring in? He brings in George Harrison to cover that song. He brings in George Harrison to do a bunch of sessions that end up not really getting released. But you know, what does it say about his mindset at the time? He's experimenting with every form he can think of. Mm-hmm. Jazz songs, rock songs, his folk milieu that he already did, his the stuff that he was already known for, but he's stepping outside of his comfort zone, and that is very telling. This is the record that has turned up all these alternate takes that ended up on another self-portrait for a sign on the window, for New Morning, for If Not For You, When To See The Gypsy. And the reason for that is that he was trying to find and experiment with different modes and sounds in a way that he more or less would stop doing from this point onward. Famously, he, he went back for a big rethink uh, on Blood On The Tracks, as we're going to find out. But this is really kind of... That last time where he, he, he evinced a real intense interest and willingness to work on kind of what you would call pop songcraft. And then again, I think he just kind of decided that he was going to live life more emotively. Uh, you know, we'll get to it when we talk about Blood on the Tracks, but you know, Dylan always said, and people thought he was kidding. He said, look, well, that song, you know, this album's not about like my painful divorce from my wife. It, yeah. This album is about uh, my interest in painting. But I really do actually think there's truth to that, that from this point onwards, he takes a much more impressionistic approach to music and a much more sort of he returns to his his earlier haphazard approach to recording, saying we're going to get it, we're going to record it, we're going to get the feel right, and then we're going to move onwards. But here you see the last sort of gasp of Bob Dylan as studio experimenter, which is why New Morning is a lot more fascinating than people give him credit for. Um, Scott, yeah. do you have anything to add before we move on? I really love the, I mean, you call it like a kitchen sink approach to this album. It is all over the place in terms of style, um, and I think it works wonderfully. Uh, maybe I would call it a minor classic. I think it's one that should be heard. New Morning. Guys, that's a killer track. I mean, is. that is one of my favorite uh, Dylan songs from this era. Gorgeous vocal delivery. And that first line, can't you hear that rooster crowing? Sets the mood for that whole song, this bouncy, joyous take on life. It's just like, it, it's just a, it's just a, you know, thankful to be alive kind of song. Can't you hear that rooster crowing? Rabbit running down across the road Underneath the bridge where the water flows through So happy just to see a smile Underneath the sky blue On this new morning And that melody, that melody is a thought-through melody. That is a written melody. That is not just like a folk cliché. That is a melody that he clearly worked out in advance, and he worked hard on. Uh, Day of the Locusts, uh, Andrew went through the the theme, but that's one of my favorite melodies from the the album, too. It's just a catchy, good, big chorus. Uh, Again, the, the organ carries a lot of that song. Um, I, I don't think if dogs run free is a great, uh, it's a great experiment. But you get the waltz of, of ah, it's, it's, it's silly, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, and you know I'll even go to bat for Three Angels and, and Father of Night. Quite frankly, I, uh, they're not classics, but um, you know Three Angels is, is like a spoken word kind of gospel tinged uh, track with this description of a, of a like Christmas decorations. And Father of Night, you know, he just found this pretty great piano riff. <laughs> 
and starts talking about, you know, listing God's gifts to mankind. It's only about 90 seconds worth of music. Uh, it, it closes the album. I, I, I like the way it closes the album. I like the stylistic uh, pivots throughout New Morning. It's not a Stone Cold classic, uh, but it's not middling. And I, I think there are some really true highlights here uh, on the album. I don't know if uh, if I'm cribbing on Jeff's plans to talk maybe about but after this album came the the greatest hits and there were a couple of songs that kind of came right out of new morning that were never released on an album uh that I think are also fantastic yeah go for it yeah uh, uh watching the river flow which was recorded right I think right after the new morning sessions and it was it was ended up as the lead single from Bob Dylan's greatest hits volume two uh and then the b-side to that which is one of my all-time favorite Bob Dylan songs ever it's actually a cover of a the classic like cowboy poem, Spanish is a loving tongue, and it yes. this is the version done on piano, and we'll talk about it later on this on the the worst album by far in his entire discography where he did it this really terrible version, but the version that B sides watching the river flow later included on masterpiece masterpiece is the obscure Australian <laughs> three CD set yes <laughs> and this beautiful just I think it's just Bob on piano singing and it's absolutely gorgeous I, I, like it makes my heart gush thinking about it it's just such a, a beautiful rendition and it's like cowboy music with a little bit of uh, uh spanish flair to it i guess the word spanish in the, in the title makes me think it automatically has this hispanic tinge to it but it's just it's uh, i can't i can't praise it enough and everybody should listen to it i don't look much like a lover still i hear her love words Mostly when I'm all alone Mi amor, mi So the thing about uh, Andrew uh, is talking about Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume 2. Normally, you don't talk about Greatest Hits collections. But Dylan, again, you know, kind of falling into silence. And, and again, as I said earlier at the beginning of the show, this is you know, the big, great you know, Cezura in his career. He fell silent for a while. He came back with an interesting movie soundtrack. But then everything afterwards would be a different kind of Bob Dylan. But what he ended his classic era with were these songs that he recorded uh, for his, his second greatest hits album, which, by the way, is actually pretty fun. His first greatest hits album is just all the, the hits you've heard before, mm-hmm. Blowing in the Wind and all that crap. Um, <laughs> but Greatest Hits Volume 2 has got some of the more interesting album tracks, things like Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And then the final side is a bunch of rarities and re-recorded songs. When I, stuff that was basically mostly made famous by the band and uh, by other artists. So when I, I was on there. What'd you say? When I paint my masterpiece, that's on there, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I paint my masterpiece, I shall be released. Yeah. Which I, you know, that version of "I shall be released" is 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 kind of come famous in latter era, but it's just. It's not nothing's ever going to beat either the basement tapes version or the band version. Um, you ain't going nowhere. He did a version of um, and down in the flood, uh, but you know that's a nice little kind of end and a coda. And then before the new Bob Dylan sort of emerges <laughs> out of this chrysalis, you have this weird little blip on the radar, which is an album called Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. 
It's the first and last time Bob Dylan would do a movie soundtrack. Andrew's talked a couple times already now about Bob Dylan and film. Well, I mean, there's no better example of Bob Dylan and film than the film that he actually provided a score for. Mm -hmm. And it's such a strange album. It's not really an album. It's mostly instrumentals. There are only two actual songs on it, and one of those songs is repeated three times in three different versions. It's just called Billy, and it's not that good. Um, and yet the instrumentals are very pleasant. I put the record on, and I find myself just sort of grooving along to it if I'm doing something else. And then all of a sudden, midway through the second side, and I just don't know if he even paid attention to the way album ordering was done, if this was an intentional act, if he really wanted to just mess with people's expectations, or if, you know, some guy, you know, at the record label assembled this at random and just you say, yeah, throw it there. But midway through the second side, in the midst of all this instrumental music, comes one of the most famous songs Bob Dylan ever wrote, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Out of Nowhere. Mama, take this bat, you know, take these guns away from me. I can't use them anymore. It's getting dark, too dark to see. Because I'm knocking on heaven's door. You've heard this song. You've known this song. The song's been covered by everybody, <laughs> from Guns N' Roses and Eric Clapton <laughs> to you know your local bar band down the street. Um, just a beautiful song and a beautiful moment on an album that otherwise feels like one of the more footnoty footnotes in Dylan's career. Like Billy, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> which version? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, one four or seven. <laughs> I used to want to cover one of them live, and I forget which one it was. It's uh, well, <laughs> they're all basically the same verses. Just some of them have no verses. Yeah, it's very yeah. bizarre. It's true, and yeah, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Obviously, I think is one of its achievements, but it's uh, it's just too bad that Axl Rose decided to tack on the forever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Instead of you know, like this gorgeous. And if you've ever seen the movie itself, the Sam Peckinpah film, it's the point where the song comes into the movie is just absolutely heart wrenching. I think I forget Billy had just shot someone dead, and he stumbles off to the lake. I think it's somebody who used to be his friend, if I remember the movie correctly. And so there's this sort of melancholic feel to having shot somebody he's acquainted with, and the guy stumbles off to the lake and goes to die, and it's really, really beautiful. 
I mean, it's it's the the first time I remember watching in a film somebody just saying like, "Can I?" You know, in that moment, I've been shot. I'm accepting my death, and I'm coming to grips with my, my the instant reality of my mortality. I'm going to go die in peace, and it's just ah, yeah, it's just beautiful in that film, which is otherwise you know a very kind of confused film for Peck and Pod, the studio kind of didn't do it justice they cut it to shreds and dylan by the way bob dylan as actor uh, bob dylan plays a bit part in uh pat garrett and billy the kid and i gotta say you know don't quit your day job bob <laughs> you <were laughs> better singer songwriter than you are an actor well he hey, would no I, I i have nothing to add i'm just i'm just <laughs> raring to get to the next album you know dylan well which is with the next album <laughs> this is what i meant when i talked about this sort of caterpillar chrysalis change in dylan that you know new morning kind of wrapped up an era a long era where you saw bob dylan you know ascending changing but in, in in a coherent way and then all of a sudden he does something that he was not normally known to do which is that he he goes back and he hooks up with an old group of friends and that is the band he gets together with uh, with the band who themselves had fallen on hard times at that point the band had kind of ceased making great albums by 1973 uh so what do they do they get together with dylan who's just signed a, a, a record deal with a new label uh and they come out with planet waves planet waves is bob dylan's first number one album which is a weird thing because I think it's a very compromised album, yes. and yet it contains, you know, one of the finest songs that Bob Dylan would ever record. We already talked about this on our band episode, which is Forever Young. Forever Young is a song that Dylan wrote for, for Jacob Dylan, for his child, uh, and, and it's just one of the most powerful father-son ballads that will ever exist. You know, there, there's there's a fine line between writing something that is moving and dignified about such a, a potentially maudlin subject. And then, you know, on the other end of that, you've got, you know, glurge and pure pathetic sentimentality. And Forever Young stays well, well on the right side of that line. Um, you, know, you know, may your hands always be busy. Uh, may your song always be sung and may you stay forever young. It's just a beautiful song. And then when he, that final instrumental play out, which I already talked about on our band episode, is one of the finest moments of Dylan's career and the band's career.
But uh, so much of the rest of this album, I feel, is let down for both of their careers. I, the, these songs never appeared again in uh, their live repertoire, and I think there's a reason for that. On a Night Like This is pretty good. Um, I like the wedding song, even mm-hmm. though it, it just you know has weird vibes, given that the, the turmoil in Dylan's marriage that you know it was written about, and almost sort of like as a seems to exist as sort of a totemic charm to ward off the bad vibes. Um, I don't even like the fast version of Forever Young. The reason that exists is because the uh, slow version nearly didn't make the album when some woman who was in the studio during the recording sessions actually you know, went to Bob after it was recorded and said, oh, yeah, you're getting sentimental in your old age, aren't you, Bob? And then Bob had his classic case of the willies and almost wanted to get rid of it. And the only way they could force him, because everyone else, the band knew it, the producers knew it, that this is one of your best songs. The only way they could get him to agree to have it on the album was to include that fast version that opens side two, which I don't really think is very good at all. But um, I know a lot of other people love this record, and I might be the one who's out on a limb with it. I don't think you're out. Uh, well, I don't think you're out of uh, uh, um, out of out of your lane, so to speak. I, I, I'm along the same lines that you know. I, I heard the album previously. I listened to it again two, two, three times heading up to this episode, and the, the question I kept asking myself is. Would this album have been any different if the band hadn't taken part in it? If it were just Bob Dylan and his usual studio cast? And I, I'm not sure it would be. I don't, I'm, I don't know exactly what the band brings to the table here on a lot of these tracks. Now, there are a few, to be sure, where they make a difference. Um, and, and certainly, uh, Something There Is About You, I think, is a track where every member of the band... Uh, really shines. Uh, that's a great track, a true band song, uh, a collective song. Everyone is, is everyone's strengths are highlighted. And uh, you know, he could be talking about a woman. He could be talking about the band. You know, something about you that strikes a match in me. Uh, but there is that line, I think, late in the song. Right? I, I could say I'd be faithful. I could say it in one easy, sweet breath. But to you, that would be cruelty. To me, it would be, uh, it would surely be death. Something there is about you. writing going on in some of these songs too forever young jeff mentioned look you have kids and and listen and, and it's everything you want from them it's it's hard to make it through without tearing up quite frankly you know mentally spiritually physically uh the, the well-being that you wish for your kids in this in this very poetic way that dylan pulls off very well uh tough mama i, I, like, I like garth's uh, organ work quite a bit on, on tough mama and there's some really interesting uh, rhyming patterns in there, although I think one of them involves the word crotch, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a Dylan uh, song, but it, it's there. Um, going, going, gone's okay. I, I, I just keep, I, I keep going back expecting more 
from Planet Waves, and I don't, I don't get it. For me, uh, Planet Waves, I, I think it's underrated overall in his catalog, like I think of most of the 70s albums. But for me, if the first side of the album had been released as sort of a short LP or an, al- or an EP, uh, I think the first side is just solid. I think it's a great, great series of songs. But I think part of that is, for me is tainted. Well, it, it might be colored a little bit too much by the association with the band in multiple ways. So for one, on a night like this, I think is fantastic and it reminds but the reason it might be fantastic is because it reminds me of life as a carnival or cahoots era band mm-hmm. it sounds like that sort of raucous uh carnival-esque circusy folk music that has a little bit of like a swamp boogie to it and and i think that that might be why i like it that much and then hazel for me lays right in the middle of side one uh I, I don't know if maybe my love of that song comes not from this, but because he did it with the band on the last waltz as part of this incredible medley of songs that just mad every time I hear it. Give you the sky Hazel for me, I think it felt like the first half of the album for me is is a clincher, and I, I, the second half of the album, yeah, I think I, I think is a little weaker. I mean, the thing about the album is that he also left off one of the best songs, um, not only of those sessions, but I think of his '70s career, uh, not the best song, which is going to come from the next album's recording sessions, called uh, "Nobody Except You." which I just don't know why he didn't get around to recording a finished take of. There's nothing around here to me that's sacred except you, except you. Um, it's just a beautiful song. He even played it live with the band when they went out on tour, and yet he didn't ever bother to finish the recording of it. Hmm. And I always wonder why, and I always come back to suppositions that are probably unfounded that it had something to do with the emotional content of the songs. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of dancing in a lot of these mid-70s albums uh, around his relationship with his wife, Sarah yes. Dillon. Yeah. And, of course, it never comes more painfully to the forefront than on the song Sarah, uh, or, or I guess on the entirety of Blood on the Tracks, for that <laughs> matter. But uh, I, I feel like that song should have been here, and instead it was replaced by the wedding song, which is actually not a bad tune. It has a certain intensity to it, but it's a much simpler song. It's, it's, it's also kind of has, it has a darker intensity to it that I don't think serves the second half of Planet Waves well. You know, one other thing before we move on is that this is the moment that Dylan chose to reemerge uh, uh, as a live performer. And this was no minor thing. This was a huge flipping deal. When Bob Dylan and the band took their act out on the road it was the biggest concert ticket of 1974 and it ended up resulting in a double album known as before the flood 
which a lot of people, I mean, this, this is a rapturously, rapturously reviewed double record back in the day. And the interesting thing about it is that this is Dylan's first live album. Mm-hmm. For a guy who would end up releasing just like a thousand <laughs> live albums, it took until 1974 for him to actually release a, a devoted live record. And a lot of people love this, too. A lot of people say this is one of his finest records. You, you'll find straight tracks from this showing up on almost every compilation you know, that goes beyond a single disc that Dylan did. Uh, I wanted to know if – I don't know, Scott, if you ever had a chance to really listen to this one in depth. Andrew, I'm sure you, you have just like I have. I don't know. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I, I did. I have. I, I think it's really excellent. Um, you know, that we're about to enter the stretch, as Jeff mentioned, where there are uh, a number of Dylan live albums that are, are going to come up soon, and this certainly might be the the, the best. Um, you know, just a, a roaring version of most likely you go uh, your way. Um, there's a lot of good track. You know, Garth Hudson's organ tone on "Knocking on Heaven's Door" is just heavenly. It's, it's fantastic. Um, the, the live, like a Rolling Stone, much, 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 much better than the self-portrait version, of course. Um, uh, you know, so many of these songs are reworked, which Dylan would do throughout his, his live career. I, I think some of them don't, don't work fabulously. I, I don't love the rework on Rainy Day Woman. I don't love the rework on Highway 61 all that much, but there's really an aggressive style and approach to these songs that were, were maybe the, if the, if the band fell flat to my ears on Planet Waves and what they brought to those songs... I do think the strength and the power and the greatness of the band in a, in a live setting is certainly evident on Before the Flood. Yeah, and uh, the thing about this, I mean, I love this live album. This is, I think, yeah, well, it's absolutely his best live album. But uh, for me, it's also a, it really is like a, a, a key to understanding where he's about to go with his live renditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is the first time while Bob Bob is reinventing a lot of these classics and then some of his newer stuff, turning him into these like ramshackle care all about to come off the train's about to come off the tracks, kind of just roaring through these songs, just blasting through them in a way that is I, I can't imagine how enthralling it must have been live. at MSG was one of these was recorded but just taking all these songs that normally have that like there's a bunch of uh, slower sort of folk country tunes on here and just making them even like the weight the band's version of the weight on here is incredible it's just uh, it's it's like taking that sort of country folk persona of Dylan and making it rock and roll again and that's what makes it so special well um, at that point uh, Bob Dylan does blood on the tracks which is not a really important album so we're going to move on to desire which i think is, is really you know where he comes into his own um okay obviously I, I'm, I'm just being a jackass here uh blood on the tracks follows this is i think as anybody who understands bob dylan 
and is listening to this episode could have predicted it in advance. Going to be kind of the centerpiece of this Bob Dylan in the 70s episode. This is, for a lot of people, not only the best album that Dylan put out in, in this decade. A lot of people would argue this is Bob Dylan's best ever album. Would then go on to say this is one of the best albums ever released. There are so many things to say about this. This is a live grenade that I am going to be brutally unfair and toss into Andrew's lap to discuss first with no prelude. Go. I put this when I ranked the when I did my definitive ranking of Bob Dylan's albums last year for the Daily Beast. I put Blood on the Tracks at number one. Uh, just uh, I know a lot of people disagree with that because it's not you know the quintessential Bob that everybody thinks of. Bob, I refer to him by his first name, but uh, <laughs> for me, it's like. I, I don't know. I've I've loved this record since before I understood mature, you know, relationships. But you know, getting married and and being through long term relationships and having terrible breakups, I think, only made me appreciate it more. But one of the fascinating things I've always loved about this album is that I think we've kind of hinted at it is that the first fifteen years of his career, he was, you know, most of his lyrics were sarcastic or you know, sort of. Uh, screeching at you or like with surrealist poetry and just these tall tales that he would tell on the, the country albums. And, uh, and this time it's soul bearing, but in the only, in like a way only Dylan could have done. Um, and there's a quote that I think I, I added in the, uh, when I, when I wrote about it where he didn't, he didn't understand why people love this album so much. And one thing he said was a lot of people tell me they enjoy that album, but it's hard for me to relate to that. You know, I mean, people enjoying that type of pain, and it's like, yeah, Bob. People love, people love to relate to things that yeah. uh, that that speak to their experiences. <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. For me, it's like every aspect of love is perfectly summarized in this sort of, you know, from the tenderness, there's tenderness on this album, there's there's righteous indignation of a breakup. I mean, Idiot Wind is arguably the greatest breakup song of all time, in my opinion. Well, just maybe my opinion. Uh, it's it's just a crowning achievement of explaining every single thing about love and it's and, and the way it, when it falls. I mean, you know, there's the wistfulness that comes with a, f a failing relationship and thinking back on the way it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is just the perfect, and uh, uh, one other thing is it also kind of kicked off the singer songwriter. Uh, I, I know he's, you know, he'd, he'd done singer, singer songwriter folk albums before, but this for me is like the beginning of that sort of bare all singer songwriter music that uh, for now we take for granted, but this was like, this was really revolutionary. I think uh, every I, I can go through all the songs, but I won't. But like my favorite, 
for me, obviously, you get the ones that are always, always, always on radio. Idiot Wind, Tangled Up in Blue, Simple Twist of Fate. Those are just masterpieces. But for me, I think my favorite might actually be Shelter from the Storm, which is might be the simplest in terms of the melody because it's just the same melody repeated. There's no, there's no weird breaks. There's nothing particularly unusual about it. But the reason I love it is because I think it is just a perfect pop song because it's just three chords repeated over and over again. Um, and it's such a great song by me- if you were to measure a great song by how much it could be molded and reshaped and still be great. And that's Shelter from the Storm went through so many renditions live and every single version that he did in the late 70s and in the 80s where he turned it into this like stomping rocker. Every single version has been fantastic and it's been a complete reinvention from the previous version. And I think Shelter from the Storm is like a great way to look at the lens of Bob Dylan completely, constantly changing his sound throughout the 70s and 80s. Dylan always talked about how uh, Blood on the Tracks was inspired. And of course, you know, Dylan's being gnomic. He doesn't want to talk about the pain, the real personal pain on this record, which is, boy, I mean, come on, you know, don't, don't. Don't kid us, Bob. Right. This is obviously about personal relationships gone bad. But he, he talked about how it was inspired by his newfound hobby of painting. And although that's obviously a diversion to get people away from the reality that this is very personal a record, I get it too. It's also correct because his lyrics are so painterly. Mm-hmm. It's Again, not, none of the scattershot uh, sort of carnivalesque imagery of, say, Blonde on Blonde. This is very well observed images and of course shelter from the storm is is a great example of that that is just one of the finest lyrics he'll ever write uh you know twas in another lifetime one of toil and blood when blackness was a virtue and the road was full of mud i came in from the wilderness a creature void of form come in she said i'll give you shelter from the storm and there's all these great images there's that that christ-like image too Mm -hmm. in, in, in a little hilltop village you know, they gambled for my clothes. I bargained for salvation, and she gave me a lethal dose. I uh, just these great, beautiful, beautifully well observed couplets that that speak to uh, an attention to every word that he was writing, and you hear it on the earlier verses, the later versions of this song. In a little hilltop village, they gambled for my clothes. I bargained for salvation, and she gave me a lethal dose. I offered up my innocence, I got repaid with scorn. Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm. Well, I'm living in a foreign country, but I'm bound to cross the line. Beauty walks a razor's edge, someday I'll make it mine. If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born. Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm. Before I really get to talking about the ones that matter to me, Andrew, I want to ask you, uh, as somebody who who loves this album as much as I do, do you have an opinion on the New York versions versus... The final versions of these songs. For those who don't know, Dylan originally recorded this as almost an entirely folk album. Him on an acoustic guitar, a very kind of discreet bass player, and uh, you know, on "Meet Me in the Morning" there was like a drum line. He did one blues song, but it was otherwise it was a very kind of a folky throwback thing. And then before it was released, 
he you know had a big rethink he went to minneapolis and he recorded a lot of the songs with a full band so tangled up in blue idiot wind uh, you're a big girl now you're gonna make me lonesome or um uh if you see her say hello those were all redone lily rosemary and the jack of hearts actually is the one i think that it actually comes off the best in the re-recordings but what do you think do you are you a new york man or are you a minneapolis man when it comes yeah, to that's hard that's hard um also, funny fact, I think it was his brother that heard the New York versions and was like, you got to go back, you got to go to Minneapolis and record them. And so we can thank his brother for the versions that everybody knows. But um, I don't know. Uh, for me personally, I actually think I prefer the New York, the version that most people haven't heard, uh, just because I learned to play open D guitar from that album because it's actually every song is in the same key, recorded it with the same five or six versions of uh, phrasings of certain chords. And it's just, yeah. it's a great, way to learn yeah, it is. <laughs> um but i mean obviously you learn four chords and you can play shelter from the storm idiot wind tangled up in blue and they'll all sound great too it's it's, it's great and uh i, I honestly i i personally prefer that but the finished product including the minneapolis versions there's just it's you know it's jazzier it's sexy while while the music the actual lyrics are depressing oftentimes it's it's got this sort of like sexy coolness to it like he's just it's confident and it's so uh, whatever it was that made him go do that it, it it obviously paid off scott yeah keeping you know he's just 33 years old still right i mean he's we're, we're like 15 albums into a career 13 years or so into a career he's still 33 years old but with this almost need to reestablish himself Jeff mentioned the the lyrical content on Blood in the Tracks is so far and away better than what he had been up to since, what, at least John Wesley Harding. I mean, the, and the, just the visual the imagery in, in these songs is incredible. Um, Tangled Up in Blue is, to me, like, like a Rolling Stone in its feel, in its momentum, the lyrics kind of spilling out over the edges. The way it kicks into gear just in time for the chorus. Some great phrases. I, I always love, uh, helped her out of a jam, I guess, but I use a little too much force. Just the way that gets delivered in that song is fantastic. These descriptions of various relationship with, uh, relationships with women in various cities. And that last verse where, uh, you know, to me, he's, he's, he's heading back to that first woman mentioned in the song. Going back again, got to get to her somehow. Uh, Tangled Up in Blue is is one of those classics that deserves to be 100% and, and, and deserves to be heard as well. Uh, I, I, I adore Buckets of Rain. It's just a beautiful, bittersweet song. And there, if you listen, there's a clarity to his voice, his vocals in Buckets of Rain, that we wouldn't hear again because this this starts the era where he is you know, recording, touring, recording, touring, 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 by certainly street legal, if not before, you, you begin to hear, you know, the, kind of the, the growl, uh, the Dylan growl that that, uh, that we hear through the 80s as well, and, and even in the 90s. Here, his voice is still pretty pure, and especially on Buckets of Rain, it is such a beautiful song. Um, you know, life's not fair, make the best with what you got, right? Life is sad, life is a bust, all you can do is... Do what you must. Life is sad, life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do, and you do it well. I do it for you, honey, baby, can't you tell? 
Buckets Rain's a great, great song. I know Jeff's going to talk about Idiot Wind here in a second, which which Andrew mentioned too. Um, maybe in the morning, I think is might be the best blues, you know, the blues delivery, best blues song in Dylan's catalog. It's just, I think that's the only one that made it through from the New York Sessions Untouched, if I remember correctly. Uh, and, and that's a good one too. Uh, Jeff or uh, Andrew mentioned Simple Twist of Fate. Um, you're a big girl now, man. The disintegration of, of a relationship. And again, Bob says it's not his. It's, you know, he doesn't do first person stuff okay, but uh, certainly feels like it is. Heartbreak and agony, both in the lyrics and in the delivery as well. And that, you know, when he says, I can change, I swear, and then he's kind of howls. It's just heartbreaking stuff. And, uh, you know, Andrew mentioned too that kind of this, just this, this path through love and heartache and, separation it runs through the entire album and i don't know if something like this was expected or anticipated from dylan dylan at this time it had been so long since he came up with something quite this good it, it, it's phenomenal uh, the the i don't know any other better way to, to describe it than to say the effulgence of talent and skill and and Emotion on Blood on the Tracks is something that Dylan would never repeat again. His heart would be in so much more music that he went on to make, um, but he would never be as as naked and mm-hmm. open on this album as he was again. And he would never be as naked as he was again as he is on this album. And for me, the the hinge point of that is, of course, Idiot Wind. So when I asked Andrew about you know the difference between those New York versions versus the uh, Minneapolis versions, the the reason I ask is that it's it's a draw to me in many ways. I, I as much as I love the uh, original version of Tangled Up in Blue, I, I think that the remake, the band remake that opens Blood on the Tracks, has got a, a real something special to it. Yep. That that I love. So now I'm going back again. I got to get to her somehow. All the people. Be- I don't know what they do with their lives But me, I'm still on the road Ahead for another joint We always did feel the same We just saw it from a different point of view love you blue And I think Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts is actually much better as like it's kind of, it's kind of you know, a story song very kind of different than the rest of the music on this record certainly different than the rest of the lyrics on this record but it's fun it's a it's an old west tale it's a shaggy dog story and i love those sorts of things when they come from dylan but idiot wind i think loses something in the translation from that original just starkly painful sadder but wiser version that he did on the new york sessions where he's just playing with an acoustic guitar and a bass and you know he sings different lyrics on it too and that means so much to me like so uh, the the album version ends with a couplet that goes um was uh, you'll never know the hurt i suffered and all the pain i rose above and i'll never know the same about you your holiness or any kind of love and it makes me feel so sorry there's there's kind of a self-pitying anger there a, a rage uh, again, that you know, they, they talk it really keys into what Andrew was talking about about you know being a great breakup song. But on the original version, he sings something much, much more profound. 
even though it's much more indirect, where he says, you, know, you close your eyes and part your lips and slip your fingers from your glove. You can have the best there is, but it's going to cost you all your love. You won't get it from money. And, oh, that, that, that couplet just gets me every single time. And then when he sings, you know, idiot wind blowing through the dust upon our shelves, we're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. <laughs> the rage and the anger that you hear on the album version is replaced by this sort of mutual sense of, you know, mutual condemnation. It's not just a you broke my heart, you betrayed me, and I hate you, which you get on that, and you also get on kind of the ridiculously great amped up version that you hear on Hard Rain. Uh, instead, it's replaced by a sense of we're both at fault here. That this, this relationship fell to pieces because of the, the mistakes that we both made. And as, as much as I, I say that you're an idiot, babe, and, I, and I'm angry at you, as much as I rage at you, at the end of the day, I know that I'm just as much to blame for what happened between us as you are. And he conveys that, never by saying it outright, but just by shifting his tone and shifting the words so subtly. And... Uh, the last two minutes of that song, you can hear this on the Bootleg Series, Volumes 1 through 3, the first ever release of the Bootleg Series, which is kind of one of the most famous box sets ever released. It ends disc two. It ends with a two-minute-long harmonica solo, which is, I would argue, every bit as eloquent as Bob Dylan has ever been with lyrics, just done with harmonica. The most beautiful perfectly measured and phrased instrumental performance he ever gave in his life that has all of the sadness, all of the pain, all of the rage, and all of the regret of the lyrics folded up into that one small performance that caps the song. And I just, every time I heard it, I remember hearing it for the first time, I must have been 14 years old, 15 years old, and I was a 15-year-old. What the heck did I know about mature <laughs> relationships or love? But even then, I got it, and I could understand it. I knew it, and I knew that I was listening to uh, profound art, profound personal art that was both personal and was public and, and meant something to me as well as the person who had written and performed it, which is a very rare feeling. And it's kind of the moment where I decided I wasn't just – a fan of Bob Dylan's. I didn't just, you know, appreciate him, respect him, admire him. I loved Dylan. At mm. that moment, I, I, I realized that no one could make me feel the way he made me feel. And I still put that song on now, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, and I feel exactly the same way. Um, just one last thought about Blood on the Tracks, I'll say, is this is an album that is, that is so good that <clears throat> one of the finest songs he ever wrote uh, was an outtake that he never returned to. It's a song called Up To Me. You can only find it on Biograph. Again, this mid-'80s box set that people don't ever think about these days. Pretty good. Um, but the song itself is amazing. It opens with this, again, great couplet. Everything went from bad to worse, and money never changed a thing. Death kept following, hunting us down, but at least I heard your bluebird sing. Um, what a wonderful song it's built around that same open D tuning, or is it open D or open G? I can never remember. I thought it was open G, but it's been so long since I picked up the guitar to know. Um, and he just, again, cast it off. It reminds me of She's Your Lover Now from the Blonde on Blonde Sessions. Just a fantastic song of Dylan's that uh, people don't know. People are never going to find unless they truly become obsessives. But I hope that we can introduce you, the listener, too, at some point. Everything went from bad to worse. Money never changed a thing. 
death kept following, tracking us down. At least I heard your bluebird sing. Now somebody's got to show their hand. Time is an enemy. I know you're long gone. I guess it must be up to me. If I'd have thought about it, I never would have done it. I guess I would have let it slide. If I'd have paid attention to what others were thinking, the heart inside me would have died. But I was just too stubborn to ever be governed by enforced insanity. Someone had to reach for the rising star. I guess it was up to me. Political Beats, uh, part two of three on uh, Bob Dylan. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair. Our guest this week is Andrew Carell. You can find him on Twitter, Andrew Carell. Senior editor at The Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage as well. From uh, from Blood on the Tracks, a follow-up called Desire. And uh, Andrew, as I mentioned, writes music over at The Daily Beast. In prepping for this, I actually uh, went and, and read. I, I know what Andrew's going to say. I went and read Andrew's uh, uh, retrospective on Desire, prepping for this episode, because I I, I must admit, uh, despite the fact Desire is, uh, has received wonderful reviews at the, at the time and sold a bunch of albums for Dylan, this one has always left me underwhelmed, guys, and I, I don't know how much of it is because of one specific song, but I won't discount the fact that I think Joey is is an abomination. Uh, uh, Joey's a song on Desire about a uh, uh, New York City mob member who was uh, <laughs> who was killed, and uh, it makes it is a sympathetic, romantic portrait of of this mobster that goes on for eleven minutes um asking questions it, like it's basically the song version of that recent john travolta film about yes. john Gotti, yeah right. which got zero percent on rotten tomatoes which is kind of what the rating of this song is in my opinion yeah a- asking questions like what made them want to come and blow you away um i know the men that shot you down or shot him down will get what they deserve uh pointing out he didn't carry a gun though if i read the story correctly he was actually carrying a gun when he was shot down um <laughs> He turned over a table to. He's such a family guy. Turned over. This guy led some of the bloodiest mob wars in New York City. And uh, uh, man, what was Lester Bangs' quote? The uh, sympathetic, romantic portrait of an amoral gangster, something along those lines. It's just a terrible. I think Chris Gow actually did an even better job of saying is that, like, you know, given how he knew about Gallo, he was a New Yorker. It's like, given how, like, violent violently you know dylan destroys the true history of who joey gallo was it makes you really kind of suspicious about his account of hurricane carter right. too yeah i think i think chris gas is like now i think that hurricane is guilty as well <laughs> someday
And even in the Hurricane song, we, there are some factual liberties taken, though though it's uh, much closer to to reality, I guess. And, and most people, a lot of people know the, the Hurricane song, both from the album, of course, it's used in the, in the, in the movie later on, too. And, and Hurricane was released. So, you know, Bob got some, some results from that one. Boy, I really hate Joey. I mean, I hate Joey. Um, there are a lot of songs on, you know, they're, 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 they're story songs. They're, they're, they're tales. Um, and that's never been my favorite Dylan song specifically. And so I think that's one, another reason why I don't particularly love this album. There's some, there's some pretty stuff. I think Isis is a pretty song, very memorable piano melody kind of lopes along at a nice pace. I, I kind of like Isis. Um, I don't mind one more cup of coffee, which is kind of this Western outlaw song. One more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below. Uh, this feeling of danger lurks there and doom, both for uh, perhaps life and for uh, for the relationship in the song. But man, Mozambique I don't like. Uh, Romance in Durango I don't like. There's... I, this has never done it for me, and I know it's 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 a very highly regarded uh, Dylan album, but Desire is just not for me. All right, Andrew, what do you think of this weird gypsy music? I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think it's I think it's Dylan's most adventurous album. That that's what's partly so enthralling about it. And you know, I'm in the piece I wrote, looking back on forty years of it, I. I Joey, if taken at face value, is uh, lyrically an abomination. But, uh, you know, like, obviously the question, what made them want to blow you away? It's like, ah, gee, I don't know. Uh, you know. <laughs> can't, can, can't imagine what yeah. might have done that. If I, remember, if I remember correctly, it was like one of the famous things he used to brag about all the time was just like killing a guy in cold blood while he was getting his hair cut. Like, a guy who had no, no, no regard for human life and you know, whatever. But, but my, my take on even that song, I love that song. Well, I don't love it. I like it a lot. If, if you take it as sort of like, eh, he's just writing a fictional version and it's a it's a homage to an anti-hero. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't take the tack that just blames it all on Jacques Levy? You blame, well, that's by the way the other thing that I didn't mention, that, that Dylan has a co-writer for the first time ever on, on a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is Jacques Levy, who last was seen uh, co-writing some of the Birds uh, latter era hits on their like untitled album. If anybody hears, anybody's listening is familiar with uh, Chestnut Mare off of their untitled album and some of the other late era songs by the birds, which are pretty good in my opinion. He, I don't know how he got together with Dylan. I don't remember the exact story, but here he is co-writing most of this music. Yeah. And it, a lot of the, a lot of it's great. And, um, you know, for me, it's, well, like I said, it's adventurous, but also like, I guess I was describing on before the flood, the live album, how it sounds like, Dylan understands like how to make rock and roll sound like it's coming off like the trains coming off the tracks and this is the this is an album of that and yeah. it's also just this ramshackle caravan gypsy uh, music but another thing that's really fascinating about this record and I think why it appeals to me so much having grown up going to synagogue uh, and you know ending up a secular a, a, a agnostic Jew but like what what I retained from my years going to synagogue is the beautiful melismatic melodies of the cantors and the rabbis and that this is the first time he really does that almost every song has a melismatic melody where it's it's west it's not really western it's middle eastern it's it's rabbinical it's almost like trope in some places um it's it's gypsy music it's it's mountainous music and then even the songs that are kind of grown worthy like joey i think is it, it plods on too long but it's a uh, I, I think it's a great melody for that reason. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good commentary on this album too. Uh, Black Diamond Bay, which is basically just as somebody who works in the media and just nonstop thinks about how we are a infotainment society for the worse. 
uh, Black Tie Bay is just all about this horrible tragedy going down on a volcano, volcanic island while they, all these different people are experiencing it from their points of views. And at the end, it turns out that it's just a guy, it's the narrator himself is watching it on TV and is just like, ah, I'm going to see what Cronkite's up to. I'm bored with this. <laughs> and it really speaks to how we just view tragedy as like, okay, it's the hot news flash in the pan of the day and the next day we're moving on to the next thing. I was sitting home alone one night in L.A. watching old Cronkite on the 7 o'clock news. It seems there was an earthquake that left nothing but Panama hat and a Shoes. It didn't seem like much was happening, so I turned it off and went to grab another beer. Seemed like every time you turn around, there's another hard luck story that you're gonna hear. And there's really nothing anyone can say. And I never did plan to go anyway to Black Diamond um, but I think the highlight on this album, maybe three highlights, Hurricane, obviously, but then Isis to me is like one of his monumental allegoric achievements. I, th I think it's like a great sort of like Indiana Jones story told through song. Um, but an allegory for what? <laughs> I have no idea what that song means. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like it's yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't state the allegory at the end like he did for uh, Judas Priest. Judas Priest, right. Here's the lesson, but I'm not even telling you the lesson. Uh, and then at the end of side one, there's Oh Sister, which I think is just great about the fragility of love. It's, it's just beautiful. Again, melismatic, rabbinical singing. Um, and uh, the, the last song, Sarah, which I think is just its continuation of the absolute heartbreak of uh, Blood on the Track. And it's basically the inverse of the first love song he wrote for Sarah Lowndes in uh, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Mm -hmm. this reminiscing about us going, taking our children to the beach and oh god this relationship is over and I think the story goes that she was in the or yes he from her in the studio I forget exactly I wrote about this and I forget this she stopped uh, by I think I, I don't think it was necessarily a, a setup but she was there uh, in in the in the room or the uh, you know across the glass when it was being recorded yeah and then I mean I mean I'm sure that when she was there he he decided all right guys we're taking it like they just right. like we're going to do it now <laughs> you know and that's that's just the sort of kind of open demonstrative act that you don't expect from Dylan who always seems to hide behind an artifice or a wall up until blood on the tracks and then this is I mean this is almost too open this is just so painful this it's, is him it's a, or it's a beautiful song though it's him on the floor with his, his hands around her ankle, like weeping because like there's lines in there. It's not even just like the mutual disdain of the, of idiot wind. It's it's just like him basically saying, well, there's like the line, forgive me. Um, forgive me. My unworthiness It's just, that's not even sarcastic. He's, he's begging a woman and it's, it's horribly depressing, but it's beautiful. as hell. Dude. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, he pulls out all the stops. He talks about like the kids. He's like, "What about how our beautiful children were babies and played on the beach, and I can still <laughs> see them with like you know the, like their sand buckets and the pails?" And it's just like, "Oh man, you you are really 
it's almost shameless, I guess, if it wasn't so painfully sincere that like every single image that you could think of that would jerk a tear out of your eye is in there. Uh, if it was anybody else, you would almost feel like it, it was maudlin, but because it's Dylan and he never revealed himself like this, it's so it's shocking. It, it's, it's almost violently shocking to hear this open and unabashed plea from him with the, like the name it's not he doesn't use he didn't call her laura he didn't sing laura laura no he's sarah he just said it i you know sitting there writing sad-eyed lady of the lowlands for you hey are all those people out there who listen to blonde on blonde and wonder what that song was about now you know <laughs> just, uh, i told you all it was just such a naked song i'm still i still find it hard to listen to even though i think it's the best song on the record, which is a strange thing to say. I can still hear the sounds of those Methodist bells. I'd taken the cure and it just got through. Staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, writing sad I lady of the lowlands for you. Sarah, Sarah, wherever we travel, we'll never apart. Sarah, oh Sarah, beautiful lady so dear to my heart. I'm, you know, I, I, well, two other thoughts I have is one, Emmylou Harris is all over this record and that's fantastic. That for me makes it just even more gorgeous than ever would have been because Emmylou is one of the greatest voices in, in I think, rock and roll history or country history but uh the other thing is one of his better songs and i think you and i have talked about this privately before is one of his better songs was left off the album and the recording the studio version of it it's called abandoned love yes it is not that great but there's a almost legendary version of it from i think it was the bitter end he did the bitter end yeah he did like kind of a live almost acoustic version yep it is exactly like sarah and idiot when just at you can feel in that room in the west village this guy pouring his heart out to people who were probably like felt like they were watching a god play for a, an intimate room at that point and he's just pouring his heart out and it's so uh, it just like stabs you in the chest <laughs> yeah. I, I actually you know i haven't really said my opinions on this album you guys really covered a lot of it i, I kind of fall halfway between scott and andrew and that I I I see the flaws. I mean, Joey is just such an, a blot. I, I can't I cannot talk my way around it the way Andrew seems capable <laughs> of doing. Um, I I also think that like like Black Diamond or Romance in Durango and Oh Sister don't do much for me. Um, I like Mozambique though. Everybody makes fun of that one. It's just like kind of like a silly song, you know. Uh, you know, I like to spend some time in Mozambique. The sunny sky is aqua blue. Is clearly a throwaway, but again, it's it's Dylan kind of playing with a different kind of sound. This is why I said, you know, number one album, Planet Wave, sounds nothing like number one album, Blood on the Track, mm -hmm. sounds nothing like number one album, Desire. This is weird gypsy music that doesn't sound at all careful or considered. It sounds a little improvised. It sounds a little tossed off, even Hurricane, uh, which I guess was probably more tossed off lyrically than Dylan would have cared to admit, given that he got sued by both Arthur Dexter Bradley and Patty Valentine later on for character defamation. Uh, but, you know, that sounds like, like kind of like a sort of a 70s hoot nanny. Um, the spontaneous sound of these songs, with the exception of Sarah, which again, it's just 
has to come at the end of the album because it's so different from everything on the album. It has a certain charm. It has an appeal. And, of course, that appeal is directly related to uh, one of the most famous uh, concert tours that Dylan ever involved himself in. I guess you could say it's kind of one of the legendary you know, tours of rock history, right up there with Dylan's own 66 tour or like the Stones in 69 or you know, Bruce Springsteen you know, singing at you know, the bottom line. Uh, it's Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review where he got together with uh, basically every you know, rock friend that he knew uh, and even non-rock friends, and poets and painters and uh, artists of various stripes. And he basically decided uh, to put on a giant, you know, rock hootenanny with all of his friends coming out to play. This is like, you know, a day-long show that would be capped by a Dylan concert. Uh, the band was, you know, a band that he had used uh, both on Desire and on tour. You know, they, they found the violinist busking on the street. Uh, they got Roger McGuinn in to play backup guitars. They got Mick Ronson on some songs. And you can hear what this, this concert era was like on the Bootleg Series Volume 5, the Rolling Thunder Review. We talked about it originally uh, when uh, Andrew mentioned that tonight I'll be staying here with you back at the beginning. I'm talking about Nashville Skyline. It's a really wonderful uh, kind of brisk and bracing live view of Dylan. He remakes all of these songs. There's just no fealty to what they once were. He, he is, he's committing joyful, joyful blasphemy on a nightly basis. got around to recording an official live album with this material uh, in 1976 the sort of the tour had been continuing on uh, a lot of the joy seemed to have seeped out of it in most people's opinions which leads to hard rain a live album that not a lot of people have a lot of time for or a lot of good things to say about again as i, I mentioned earlier this is one of the dylan albums that was in my dad's collection why i don't know you gotta ask my dad <laughs> maybe i'll ask him tonight um but I will say this about Hard Rain. For a record that otherwise isn't much uh, to be praised on, it has the single greatest live performance that Bob Dylan ever gave, in my opinion, which is the ending track, the ridiculously over-the-top, completely overheated and angry live version of Idiot Wind, which is, again, a third view on a song that seems to almost have infinite mutability. Every time he sings it, it can sound like something completely different. 
I like this one nearly as much as I love that sort of sadder but wiser, you know, you know mutually self-blaming version. That's the acoustic version from the New York Sessions of Blood on the Tracks. This is at the far end of the opposite spectrum. This is you know Bob Dylan literally taking a shotgun and blowing his ex-wife away <laughs> in anger and rage. But I love it. I love it so much. I don't really have much else to say about Heart Rain. I don't know if any of you guys do. I I, I like it, but Mace, for me, the centerpiece of it, though, you know, it's it's a, it's a good snapshot, especially if you ever see watched the TV special that was recorded alongside. Right. That really gives you an insight to like the stage presence that was going on at the time and just how bizarre it looked and how you know the white face paint. The white face, yes. Dylan was performing yeah, with like right. not blackface but white and, face yeah. and a uh, and like a bandana and he had you know Joan Baez and Gypsy outfit and like I think like T Bone Burnett was on stage mm-hmm. and Gypsy outfit. Mick Ronson was there. Yep. Um, but for me, the centerpiece, and I think I mentioned this before, is the version here of Shelter from the Storm is just raucous. And the, Dylan plays open D with like a slide guitar, and it's just insane. And it's so great. But then I will say one thing about this live album. I think it would have been made 10,000 times better if there's a, a song that was left off that they recorded. It, it would have been, I think it was in the TV special, but not on the Hard Rain album. Uh, it's the version of Tangled Up in Blue, and you can only hear it yeah. on a bootleg. But uh it's just it's like i think it's nine minutes long and it's just this four to the floor shuffle it's like raunchy rolling stones almost like miss you on steroids and then all of a sudden in the middle of the song it just stops turns into a country rocker for one verse because tango the blue has so many verses and then the next verse is a blues rock verse he just keeps changing and then on the last verse there's a pause and then before the final verse and the final uh the end of the outro of the song it just goes right back into a frenzied shuffle with even more instrumentation it's massive and it should have been released but maybe eventually it will come out yeah one day uh, they're going to finally release the dvd i guess you know in, in 2025 we'll finally get a copy of it we, we don't know us anything so yeah exactly and of course that brings us to the last studio album of this era uh but it's certainly not the last album of the 70s. And the reason we're going to be uh, tackling the final album of the 70s in our next episode will become abundantly clear when we get to that episode. Um, this album, though, is 1978's Street Legal. And I think there is no album about which there are sharper disagreements uh, from people who are really big Dylan fans. 
about the quality of the record than there is with Street Legal. There are a lot of people who are really serious Dylan fans who absolutely hate this record and think it is just a failure from conception to execution. And then there are a lot of Dylan fans who think it's a great record and probably his most underrated record of this era. And I think a lot of that has to do with the really compromised sound of this record. Now, Scott and I, before the uh, taping of this episode, I explained to him, he wasn't actually pr previously aware of this, that you know there was a kind of a rushed mix that was released in 1978 and that the producer, Don DeVito, had never been satisfied with it. So uh, uniquely among all Bob Dylan albums, uh, he asked Columbia Records for the opportunity to go back and remix the record from top to bottom in uh, 1999, 2000, I think, for CD. And that CD remix, to my mind, is the definitive version of this album. It absolutely destroys the earlier version of Street Legal, which I had heard and mostly dismissed, never really liked. Uh, the sound is so much clearer. The band is so much clearer. It actually sounds like people in a room playing together <laughs> and not uh, a record that's being heard through a tube sock, which is the <laughs> way the original mix of Street Legal yeah. sounds. I will say this, though. Even with the remix, a lot of these songs feel slighter. They feel like Dylan is is lost and wandering and has not found a new direction, that there's some sort of um, – there's some sort of – unrest in his life perhaps in his spirit that he's searching for something that he hasn't quite found yet which i think may actually end up having been the case um the sole exception to that and i think an, a song that maybe even references that lyrically in a lot of ways which is the best one on this record and the one that i consider one of his greatest songs of this of this entire decade is the opening track changing of the guard which you know from the second i first heard it which was on greatest hits volume three i think before i heard street legal i was taken by this that yeah you know what late 70s dylan still had a lot to offer but i'm not so certain what i think of the rest of the record so i wanted to know what you thought scott the uh, th this is a great album this I, I like it from front to back i like it even with the muddy mix and having given the uh the remix a couple of of, of listens now uh, yeah i mean clearly it's an improvement but I think these songs are, not to steal some of Andrew's thunder, I, I, I think these songs really aren't so strong that they even break through that, that muddy mix. Um, look, the, there's, the, there's some soul uh, on these tracks. The arrangements, I think, are wonderful. There's horns brought in, backing vocalists, energy all over the place. Changing of the Guards, uh, Jeff just mentioned, is, is a really fantastic song to, to start things off, even though if it's, it's one of the, the densest, most impenetrable songs lyric-wise, I think, uh, for, for Dylan from this era. But, I mean, look, uh, No Time to Think is, 
has these wonderful internal rhyming patterns um, and 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 uh, well, later on we better talk this over honky tonk pianos like twangy guitars I feel displaced I got a low down feeling you've been too faced you've been double dealing I took a chance got caught in a trance of a downhill Why you wanna hurt me? I'm excited. You can't convert me. I'm lost in the haze of your delicate ways with both eyes closed. You don't have to yearn for love. You don't have to be alone. Where Are You Tonight, the album Closer. That's a fantastic song. Um, when he launches into that title line in a chorus, just great, great delivery from, from Dylan. And, uh, you know, on, on the remix, man, you can hear a whole lot more. Uh, New Pony, which is the second song on the album, th- th- there's a bottom end that, to it that it's, that's nowhere on the actual album version. Uh, no Time to Think is improved. That The backing vocals can be slightly uh, in the way at times, not in the remix. I think it's right where it should be. I know time to think. Is your love in vain? And we, we better talk this over. I think are much better on, on the remixes. Um, so even if you hear the original, I think these songs are so strong that that, that it, it shines through. This is a... Don't you, don't you think some of the lyrics kind of wear on you, though? So, like, No Time to Think, I always liked the music of that song. Mm-hmm. But the more I listen to the lyrics, the more I realize, you know, Bob is just picking random words that rhyme out of a hat, isn't he? Socialism, hypnotism, patriotism, materialism. Nah, Bob, you just found four isms and you strung them all together. (laughs) That's why you wrote that line. Fools making laws for the breaking of jaws. I don't know. That's, to me, sort of embodies the problem that I still have with street legal, that the music is actually really good. The band is good. Yeah. The band is really good. And that's kind of why I don't like that original mix because it, it, it undersold the, the quality of the ensemble. But other than changing of the guard, which really has an epic scope to it, I think some of these lyrics just feel like, yeah, you know, he, he half baked in the worst sense of that term. But, you know, here I am interrupting you again. No. Uh, I'm, I'm about to kick it. To, I, I will say, uh, I'll see your point. Uh, this is not an extremely song, uh, st- extremely strong lyrical album. It's no blood in the tracks. There are some great portions. Um, we better talk this over. Where uh, it would be great to cross paths at a day and a half, look at each other and laugh. Um, I don't think that's likely to happen. Like the sound of one hand clapping. I, I, I think that's a, a sharp line. Um, and that song itself, <laughs> coming to grips with a breakup. I like it. I like it, Andrew. Yeah. Andrew, go. Uh, yeah, this is my five favorite Dylan albums. I would say I I, wow. I love this album. I spent a lot of time with it. Um, it was one of the later albums that I would say I got into, and that might be why is having I, having consumed it and having understood it later in in going through his career. Well, going through the the must go throughs, I guess you can say. Um, but yeah, Changing of the Guards to me is just a monumental song. And there's something about this album that appeals to me. And I think you're right. Some of the lyrics can be a little vacuous. But then other times they're really dense and, and packed full of these really clever lines. Um, 
And there's a swagger to this album that I really love, and uh, nobody's mentioned it yet, but this is the first Dylan album to have saxophone on it, and mm-hmm. it's like cool and late 70s sexy, and it's like, you know... Rod's- it works. It, it actually doesn't sound cheesy. It works. Oh, on yeah, Changing yeah. of the Guard, the sax is really up front, and it mm-hmm. works well. If it, and if it's it, not like Clarence Clemens, which I love, that style yeah. of like rock and roll But, but that's not what Bob Dylan should be doing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then there's violins, there's lots of keys, a little bit of like a synth going on. It's just, it's very, it's another adventurous album. There's, and also I think this is the first album with all, uh, I guess, majority black backing vocalists, including his future wife, Carolyn Dennis. Um, and so it gives it that like soul record and almost yes. like sometimes Motown-y. There's and, really uh, a lot of soul to this record, Andrew, especially really? listening back to it. On, on the, there's just a lot of soul to it. Yeah. And there's and and sex too. Like New Pony is just yes. straight up a like. I mean, he's probably. I could just imagine him smirking through writing and being like, <laughs> "Yeah, like I got a new pony." Like obviously, you know, come and ride or whatever the lyrics is. Just like obviously, you know what he's talking Great about. Great big hind uh, legs. Except yeah. when the old the old pony's name was Lucifer. Like Lucifer, is, yeah. Is, is that what he's saying? Sarah is like these days. I mean, I mean, the divorce settlement was tough, and actually, you know, it was bitter. Like you know, she accused him of hitting her. And then she like wanted to take the kids to Hawaii, so like there was a lot of anger that was coming out of some of those lyrics. He, he take like that's what struck me is like this is the first record after the divorce, and you would think it would be bitter and and but it's like it's sexual and it's sensual and it's like late seventies like uh, just. Uh, like there's parts like for me, I always think of the opening line from uh, "Turn the Page," Bob Seger, the the saxophone line. Like it's got that. <laughs> you know, I should be wearing a fedora, standing in like a, underneath a street like like Tom Waits in the late seventies, just like film noir character kind of thing. Like it's just cool. It's really cool, and I think it's because it's Dylan doing something completely out of his own. At least we would assume so. <laughs> And then there, you know, the, I I can't think. Having spent so much time with this record, I can't think of any duds necessarily. But uh, I do appreciate. I, I've always felt weaker about Senor Tales of Yankee Power, and then I heard Willie Nelson cover it, and I've thought and I've rethought the song a bunch of times, and I, I think I like it a lot more than I used to. But for for me, that always used to be like the the song that I would skip, and I don't know if it's something about the. The percussion, I think it has like bongos in it, and I'm not a big bongos fan, although there were bongos on <laughs> Desire, which I enjoyed very much, so I'm being a hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I will defend this album to my death. <laughs> well, I guess that leaves us with one album left to cover in our trawl through the <laughs> 70s version of Bob Dylan. Well, not all of the 70s, just most of the 70s. And this, of course, is you know, the most highly praised and best album of this era which is i think would also we'd all agree is probably one of the greatest album live albums ever recorded and certainly 
the best live album ever recorded at Budokan in Japan. <laughs> right? Right, Scott? No, uh, it's that, a, <laughs> that would be Bob Dylan at Budokan, uh, an album that, of course, you know, my obvious joking aside is universally reviled as being Bob Dylan's Las Vegas phase music. And I also had the misfortune to come out, I think, just like uh, right after or right before Cheap Trick at Budokan, which is, of course, a great live album, one of the most famous hard rock albums ever. Um, this is an album that nobody loves. And I would love to be the guy who offers the contrarian hot take opinion about it, but I listened to it at two times this week, trying to sort of it's see if I could jar bad. myself into changing my opinion about it because, you know, live Dylan is actually so endlessly rewarding and he does find ways to catch you off guard, but I can't. I, I, it really is just kind of a steaming piece of crap, and I don't know what went wrong. Anybody disagree with me? Yeah, no, but four words, shelter from the storm. That's the only reason to listen to this is it's a cool, yeah. like I said, it's once again, he's trans, he's transforming that song into something different. And that's the only song that works with like the schlocky Vegas feel of, of, of this tour. Um, although there were, I will say about this particular tour, uh, there were some songs that he record that they never recorded in studio, but that I, if you listen to bootlegs from the tour that were really good that I wish he had recorded. I think one of the, the only one I really, really enjoyed was called the coming from the heart. The law, the road is right. like, like it uses the crap out of the backup singers. And it's like just very, very um, dramatic and, and very gorgeous with those backup singers. But yeah, this is, this, this was a missed opportunity. I mean, I, I've, I've found myself listening to it just out of curiosity to like, see how one song compares to previous versions just because I'm a complete nerd about this but otherwise I would just never ever recommend anybody listen to Bob Dylan at Budokan anybody like yeah, the, the, the reggae be... twist on Don't Think Twice or no? Oh yeah I mean, <laughs> clearly clearly a great rethinking of it you know this is by the way like I had a friend who who made the argument it's like yeah you don't just you just don't like it because you know Bob isn't playing the music you're the way that you're accustomed to hearing it and, and I said like listen I have no problem with Bob Dylan reconfiguring his songs and rethinking them that's exactly what his sort of trademark is every time he comes out on a tour he's doing a different version of a song that you're already well familiar with mm -hmm. i i just mind when he does a really crap job of it, <laughs> which, is, which is what this is and you know um andrew talked about you know interesting songs that were played on this tour but did not make the album you know uh, right at the end of the tour uh which you know by the time they had returned from japan to the uh, united states uh dylan was playing um uh at least one new song that uh, in concert that he called uh, do right to me baby do unto others and he was he was uh, working out another one uh during sound checks uh, a song that he had sort of given a provisional title to called slow train which is where we're going to leave it for this week because that is where we were about to to go next for the next era of dylan's career and i would argue probably the most misunderstood era of Bob Dylan's career. Certainly the one that I have been waiting a very long time to mount a full-throated defense of. But that is for another day. That's a tease, folks. That's a tease. Yes. <laughs> this has been Bob Dylan in the 1970s, part two of our retrospective here on Political Beats. So we come to the end, and, and as we do with the multi-part shows, we still do our, our two albums and, and five songs from each of these eras that we covered during these during the separate parts. So again, uh, we turn to all three of us and ask for two albums that everyone should own and five songs that everyone needs 
to hear. And our guest, Andrew Carell, has the floor first. Andrew? Uh, my criteria is slightly different, but I'll have to try to rethink it on the fly. Um, but for me, the two albums, that when I think about two albums, I guess this would be the two albums that I recommend everybody listen to just because they're my two favorites. So Blood on the Tracks and Street Legal, which I know is not going to be picked by anybody else. No, that, then, that, that's what we want to hear. We like we like the cork picks. Yeah, and then well, in my five songs too, I obviously like last episode. I'm limiting myself to one song per album maximum, uh, and I went a little different here with some sentimental songs, but also songs that are kind of uh, they, they're at least if they're not the greatest, they're a key to understanding what was going on. And so for me, uh, it's the man in me because of the sentimental value for me, but also because it's just a really great song, "Shelter from the Storm," which I've talked about enough. Uh, Spanish is the loving tongue, with tongue, which I gushed about earlier, uh, which was a B-side, never released on an album, and Changing of the Guards, which I think is a monumental achievement in weirdo funk 70s Dylan, and then Isis, which to me is the mission statement of Desire. I was thinking about turquoise, I was thinking about gold, I was thinking about diamonds, and the world's biggest necklace as we rode through the canyons. The devilish code I was thinking about Isis How she thought I was so reckless How she told me that one day We would meet up again And things would be different The next time we went If I only could I hang on And just be her friend I still can't remember all the best things she said. Uh, all right, so uh, my two, yes, Blood on the Tracks is is one of the two that you you need to own, you need to stream, do whatever you have to do. Uh, the second album, I went back and forth quite a bit because I I really really like Street Legal, but I, I'm going to go back a bit and and tell you that it's actually uh, a new morning. Uh, go out and check out New Morning uh, from start to finish, and I think that kind of eclectic all-over-the-place style uh, from song to song even on New Morning works really, really well. So Blood on the Tracks and, and New Morning for me and the songs themselves, uh, the title track from New Morning, New Morning, uh, just killer, killer song um, from, uh, let's see, Tangled Up in Blue, I, I think just has to be there. Uh, it's a song that you have to hear. It's much like, as I said earlier, like a Rolling Stone. It's just Dylan at his best. Planet Waves, uh, something that is, uh, something there is about you. And then Buckets of Rain, again from Blood on the Tracks, just a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And I think this one might pop up on all three of ours, so that maybe that's a sign. But yes, Changing of the Guards from uh, Street Legal is also on my list. And we go to Jeff. I hate you, Scott. I hate you. I hate you so much because you stole my two albums, too. I thought I would be the guy throwing the curveball by saying that the first of my two albums is New Morning. Uh, it, it's an album that I'm not going to pick a specific song from because I think it's, it's you know, there's those few songs at the end that I downed on. But it's an even album. It's an album that really kind of represents the end of an era, the end of a continuum for Dylan, as I've kind of talked about far too much at this point. Uh, it's just also very light and very fun, very creative. It's Dylan at his most playful, and Dylan at his, is his most craftsman-like mm -hmm. uh, in a way that you would just never hear him trying to be ever again. So it's kind of fitting that it comes, you know, at the end of either the end of the '60s or the beginning of the '70s, depending on how you you care to slice that watermelon. Uh, my second album is, of course, Blood on the Tracks. I mean, when I'm 
you think I'm perverse? Obviously, it's going to be Blood <laughs> on the Tracks. If you haven't heard Blood on the Tracks, you should blush. It's one of the most important albums of the entire corpus of rock or folk pop music, however you want to describe it. Um, my five songs. Uh, I will start with a song that I have raved about now on two separate episodes, and that will be Forever Young by, uh, by uh, off of Planet Waves. Uh, maybe perhaps I feel extra sentimental because, you know, my my little bopper just came into this world about a month ago. And, uh, you know, he's still lying over there in the rock and play, you know, all swaddled up and looking really, really cute with a with a binky in his mouth. And I I love him dearly. And I think about all the wonderful things that I hope to see him realize in his life. But that's the best song that I think has ever been written by a father to their son. Uh, and uh, I just hope that everyone can appreciate how it manages to skirt overt sentimentality mm -hmm. and, and find a really dignified way to convey those sentiments. Uh, the second song I'll choose is one that I actually didn't really talk about, uh, which is You're a Big Girl Now off of Blood on the Tracks. And I would specifically say it's the New York version of You're a Big Girl Now, which is, and I'm pretentious like this, it's only available on the Obscure Boxed set. You can find it on Biograph. It's the only place you can find it, or you can steal it illegally if you're inclined to do so. Can I add real um, quick, Jeff? I, I noticed that I, I use Amazon Music Unlimited. A lot of these, um, a lot of this stuff is on Amazon Music Unlimited. Uh, so Great, and, and I'm glad about. that we can give our, our listeners a tip as to where yep. to find some of this because Dylan in particular has released a lot of these wonderful gems, but he's just they're stuffed away. Yes. Like Spanish is the loving tongue. You can find that on CD in only one place, which is on that three CD masterpieces set that I, I bought in the 90s, and now I realize I can sell on eBay for like $400. <laughs> but I'm never going to. I'm keeping that one for the rest of my life. Um but yeah, I love your big girl now. I just love you know the the the, the concision of his his observational lyric there, where you know our conversation was short and sweet. It nearly swept me off on my feet, and I'm back in the rain, and you are on dry land. You made yes, it there somehow yes. because you're a big girl now, and it sounds so much more powerful when it's just that simple acoustic bass version as opposed to the band version that he did in Minneapolis later on. Bird on the horizon Sitting on a fence He's singing his song for me At his own expense And I'm just like that bird Oh, singing just for you I hope that you can hear Hear me singing through these tears Love is so simple To quote a phrase uh, The next song that I would choose is uh, Sarah, a song that we discussed at length uh, from Desire. It is a song that is a paradox for me because I think it's one of the finest songs that Dylan did during this era, and yet I find it incredibly painful to listen to. It is when I think of my, I often will say like, I want to hear some Dylan. I want to hear the songs that move me, that really, you know, that really sing to me. I'll never put that song on. 
because it hurts. It hurts too much. It feels too naked. It feels too powerful. But sometimes a truly great work of art has to discomfort you, has to take you out of your comfort zone. It has to make you feel um, you know, emotions that you don't want to feel. Sarah is one of those songs. It is just so, so incredibly vulnerable as a lyric and also as a performance. It's, it, it, the, the arrangement and the echo that is put on Dylan's harmonica and his guitar is as stark as anything that you will ever hear in his discography. God, it hurts. Uh, my fourth song is Changing of the Guard. You guys have talked about this well enough. We all love it, and it's on all five of our lists. And then the one I want to end with is, I would say, and I've given this a lot of thought, my single favorite Bob Dylan song of all time. My number two favorite Bob Dylan song is Stuck Inside of Mobile. I talked about that last week, but my number one favorite Bob Dylan song ever is the original New York acoustic version of Idiot Wit, yep. um, which is uh, a song that, you know, at times I adopted as a personal anthem. You know, at times I have, you know, sat there and, you know, thought about, you know, the mistakes I've made in life and in my relationships. At times I have thought sympathetically through and that every single time I listen to it and I've listened to it I would say hundreds upon hundreds of times in my life at this point never fails to affect me and in fact the part that affects me the most is the part that has no lyrics at all it's just that that final wordless harmonica performance that Dylan performs all throughout the ending of the song he plays through the verse and then through the chorus and it proves that he was just as capable of being heartbreakingly eloquent um, with his instruments as he was with his words. There we go. Part two of three in the Political Beats look at Bob Dylan. We uh, say thanks to Andrew Carell, our guest, senior editor at The Daily Beast, overseeing breaking news, political media, and occasionally music coverage. Andrew, thanks uh, again, and we anticipate you'll return for, for number three. Let's get ready. <laughs> yeah, let's get let's get ready to knock out a solid what thirty years of Bob Dylan's career. <laughs> we can do it. Find the Lord too in the process. Yes, right. yes, we will. Praise Jesus. Oh, uh, my tag team partner Jeff Blair. You can find him on Twitter at Esoteric CD. We'll do part three very soon, friend. All right, can't wait. And my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in. Or go right there to the website, nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. You can also find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.